today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Collective Arts uh, planning to launch their cannabis-infused drinks under their sister company, Collective Project. This is one of many who are getting into this uh, industry as, of course, legalization has happened in Canada. And then uh, once retail, I guess, hits, uh, now you, of course, can purchase online retail uh, stores coming up in April. And then... Um, it, it will be interesting to see how this pans out into other products, whether it's edibles or drinks or, or that sort of thing. Let's bring in uh, Brad Polis, instructed Ted, uh, instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, and is on the line with us now. Brad, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Sure. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, do we have any idea what these drinks, what this is going to look like, what the landscape's going to look like in the next little while? Um, it's still a bit... Uh I'll say fizzy or fuzzy. Um, uh, the the company in Hamilton that uh, made the announcement uh, last, yesterday, uh, they haven't even mentioned exactly what their products are going to be. We we have some sense of what they'll look like, and and we're starting to get an idea of what the regulations will be. So, uh, how much THC or CBD they'll be allowed to contain per container, right. and all that kind of things, and what sort of things you'll be able to add to them. Those things are still in a little bit of a state of flux. Uh, but within the next couple of months, we'll have clarity on the rules, and then companies can start to get ready for October. So is everyone just sort of juggling for a place in line, not really knowing what that line is? It's a little bit of that, for sure. So uh, it's a, we're, we're really going into uncharted territory here. Uh, we have some sense of what the demand is based on the um, illicit market. And um, certainly we can look to the United States for examples of what kind of products are popular and uh, what sells and what, you know, what's attractive to, to consumers. Uh, there is a bit of a disconnect there. If you look at what's selling in the United States, and especially in terms of uh, product formulation, and compare that to the draft rules that have been put out by Health Canada, there's actually a significant disconnect there. So, and it has to do with dosages. So uh, that's a, another of many questions. How do you determine what is available per product, whether it's an edible, whether it is a drink? I mean, is that the equivalent of a glass of wine or a glass of beer or a mixed cocktail? I mean, how do you, how do you balance that? So it, it, it's determined in a similar fashion to the way we would package and label a bottle of beer, let's say. So you can have a bottle of beer that's down to well, 0.5% for the stuff you can buy in the grocery store, up to, gosh, it goes up above 10% for really, really strong beers. Uh, the government doesn't limit that, though. They just simply make you uh, properly um, identify on the package what's inside of it. So imagine that you wanted to just have your sort of regular beer experience watching a hockey game, but in order to get the amount of alcohol that you normally would consume by having, say, three or four beers, which is not overly excessive, you know, that you had to drink, say, 20 or 30 beers to get that amount of alcohol. That's, that's what we're talking about in some cases here with the limits on some of these product formulations. Um, are we going to see traditional products just infused with this, or are we going to, like you said, is this completely uncharted territory, and there's products here that we don't even realize yet? So... Yes and yes. Uh, there's, there's absolutely, there will be a lot of products that are infused. In fact, the vast majority will be infused. 
So these will be either products that are made from butter that contains can cannabinoids or oil that contains it, or it'll be later added, as in the case of a beverage. But there will also actually be some ca cannabis-derived uh, products. So there's a company called Province Brands in Toronto that's working on a cannabis-based beer. So they're actually going to brew cannabis into beer, as opposed to using barley hops and, well, they'll, yeah, they'll, they may use hops, but they won't use barley. They'll use cannabis as sort of primary grain, if you will. So um, what is the deal regarding, what is the agreement, uh, the law regarding alcohol and cannabis products fused together? So not allowed. Yeah. Um, you're also not allowed to add caffeine to products if it's naturally existing, say a little bit of caffeine that exists in a dark chocolate, for example. That can stay, but you can't add any caffeine. and certainly cannot mix alcohol and uh, THC. But you could theoretically take um, any product and make a cannabis version of it, like cannabis cola, something of that nature. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the technology already exists. In fact, there's a very popular brand in the United States called Dixie Brands, and it's a primarily a beverage um, brand. And they've made a, a deal with a company called Oxley up here in Canada. So their brands and their recipes and the like will all be exported here to Canada. The product will be made here, so they stay within the regulations. Uh, but they'll be using a, a already well-respected and understood brand in the United States. Which brings us to another problem. Those companies are allowed to advertise like crazy down in the United States. And, yeah. of course, airwaves and the Internet don't really respect borders, so... Uh, Canadian consumers are aware of these things, and yet the Canadian counterparts, the competitors to these companies, will not have that advantage. They can't advertise. They're very restricted in what they can do with packaging and the like. This almost seems like invent the product first and then see if it'll fly or, or, or find a law or somehow, somehow find a way within the law. Um, oh, yes, for, for sure. I mean, licensed producers will always be trying to kind of push the edge of the of the regulations without, you know, annoying the regulators too much. Uh, that's, that's just the regulated industry game, and that would apply in telecom and anywhere else where you're dealing with a regulator. Uh, but but from, the, from the point of view of a competitor, you, you're right. There's, it, as I mentioned at the outset, it's still pretty fuzzy. We, we don't really have a good sense of exactly what, um, what will be allowed in terms of packaging and the like. And, uh, of course, we only have the illicit market to look at in terms of uh, market demand and such. Um, it's almost as if it's opening the window for companies to come up with a product that somehow fits between the rules, uh, or maybe just outside them, but a, a law that's not tested yet. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what you're driving at. I think certainly most of the companies that are doing research in this area are, are really just trying to understand the rules and yeah. work within them. So here's a good example. Uh, I worked a little bit with a startup. I can't say too much, but let's just say that their product required refrigeration. And they worked on it for quite some time, and then the draft rules come out, and part of the rules is your product must not require refrigeration. So there's back to the drawing board. And that's, right. that's kind of the game here where you're dealing with uh, both the, the uncertainties of startups, which are always there, uh, and then add on, of course, the fluidity of changing regulations. Uh, what about companies who already have existing products? Are they trying to come up with new ones or just trying to fit around their old ones? And, and I can think of colas, for example, I mean, or, or, or what these drinks are going to be like specifically. 
So I, I think we'll see those companies enter the fray here. They'll have to be very careful with their brand. So, for example, if Coca-Cola decided to um, uh, create a, a Coca-Cola that had cannabis in it, that would automatically make everything Coca-Cola does yeah. cannabis. So they would now no longer be able to advertise. There'd right. be a gazillion things that they do today that they would no longer be able to do. Right. So they'll obviously do this through subsidiaries or through, um, you know, additional brands that they'll create. But but absolutely, we're going to see big beverage companies of both the alcoholic and non-alcoholic varieties competing. They're they're already doing it. They've already made investments in the space. Uh, any idea, you know, you talk that, uh, you know, industry will always take its lead from the illegal industry. Um, but how does that play a part in the edibles? What are we seeing coming out of the illegal industry that consumer or that industry might jump on? So I, I don't think it's necessarily true that they'll take their lead from the uh, illicit industry. I think out of the gate for sure, because it'll be primarily a copycat world. Right. So they'll make sure that all of the primary product formulations are available so that would include your standard um, gummy bears um, sort of pop like beverages um, chocolate bars and and then certain concentrate formulas so things like shatter and and oil that are sometimes smoked or sometimes ingested Mm -hmm. orally Um, but then over time I think we're going to see the legal market and especially the pharma world um, really come out with unique product formulations and delivery methodology. And they'll, of course, have the, uh, the finances to, to do the research necessary to do that. So, How? for example, one Sorry. of the problems with cannabis mm-hmm. is it takes a while to onset if you take it orally. So a lot of companies are working at rapid onset oral formulation for cannabis, which was very important, say, for pain. Wow. Uh, how big is this going to get? What's this industry going to look like 10 years from now? So, well, this, even this little beverage portion of the industry could easily be hundreds of millions of dollars, and that's only a couple of percent uh, of the overall industry. We're, we're looking at many tens of billions over the next few years, and then probably within five or six years, well over $100 billion. And, and, and in 10 years, cannabinoids will be ubiquitous, so even identifying the cannabis industry as a single industry will be will be tough at that point because we're going to see them in so many consumer products, especially the non-psychoactive ones, primarily CBD. Is this a land of opportunity? Uh, is this a license to print money, or like any business, there'll be there'll be great success, there'll be great failure? So it's absolutely a yes to the first and a no to the second. It's not a license to print money. In the retail game, we've already seen one company in Newfoundland, a private operator, close its doors. So, um, business principles will still apply. You will have to have a good product, provide good service, uh, consistent quality, uh, play within the rules. All of those things are going to apply, you know, as much as they do anywhere else. And, and given the attractiveness of the industry, you will see many, many, many entrants. Uh, where does this leave the black market? Uh, legislator, legislators will say that this was all about uh, curbing the black market, uh, specifically around price, things like that. Where will they end up in all of this? Where will who end up? The black market. The illicit market? Yeah. Well, in, in, uh, unless the government gets pricing right, uh, pricing and taxation, which is sort of a combination of the two, 
um, then I still think there will be an illicit market. It'll be it'll be very difficult to stamp it out entirely. They're still going to have to play the game. I think they'll probably be there within a relatively short time on product selection, but price is another issue entirely. We we see with the with the flower market, the the traditional cannabis users just not that enthralled with what's being offered through the the legal recreational cannabis system today across Canada. How do governments keep up? Uh, are they behind already in starting this? So, well, I mean, it, it was a challenge. It was a huge challenge, what, what all of the levels of government have taken on. So, yes, I mean, some of them are behind and some are doing better. Alberta, for example, is doing quite well in the, in the retail space. As you know, in Ontario, we're, we're kind of lagging a little bit behind there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it, you know, I think within, within probably another six months or so by the summertime, most of the kinks will have been worked out of supply and, and um, access to retail and all of that sort of stuff. But, of course, then we'll have a whole new bunch coming on in October with all of these cool new formulations. Brad Polos has been with us, instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University. Uh, of course, how the ever-expanding uh, industry of cannabis is growing. Uh, Collective Arts, just uh, the latest locally. Uh, to announce uh, infused beverages. Brad, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's talk about uh, former party leader Thomas Mulcair for the NDP Federal Party. Uh, he's been talking about the party a lot in the media and making lots of uh, headlines. However, one MP, uh, that being Charlie Angus, has... has sort of told him to simmer down a bit, and he's, uh, he, he's got to let bygones be bygones, so to speak, uh, and work through his feelings on the party as it runs into difficulty or as it is experiencing some difficulty trying to find its identity at this point. Let's bring in Peter Graff, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So what is with Thomas Mulcair and him vocalizing uh, uh, on the party? Is this sour grapes, or is he concerned for his party? Uh, well, I think with Tom Mulcair, uh, the NDP was, obviously he was the leader of the party, it was his party for a while, but he was always someone a bit odd inside the NDP, it's someone who had made his career in the Quebec Liberal Party, and so, you know, usually when party leaders step down, they feel a sort of sense of responsibility to not uh, trip up the person who replaces them, uh, to remain relatively productive players, if they don't have something nice to say, they don't say it. Uh, but I don't think Thomas Mulcair feels the same kind of sense of uh, NDP DNA in him. And so, given the opportunity uh, to make a bit of a career as a political analyst, uh, he's quite happy uh, you know, to play a role of speaking bluntly about where he feels the NDP is. What is his end goal in all of this? What is the reasoning for it? I mean, uh, is it to disrupt the party, or is it self-serving? Uh, well, I mean, uh, both of those probably don't reflect well on Thomas Mulcair. I mean, I don't know if he's really you know, that nefarious. Uh, but, you know, he doesn't really feel like uh, the NDP is deeply his party, and so he figures, yeah, he can make a career as being a political analyst. Uh, I don't think he's, you know, deliberately going out of his way to uh, smear the, the leadership of the party, but more to say bluntly, he just doesn't feel that they have it together. And, uh, uh, you know, looking at it, uh, he may not be entirely wrong in terms of the difficulty that the NDP has had in finding a space in our political conversation. Uh, I mean, they were out last week talking about the high rate of, uh, you know, how difficult it is in the, the real estate market for people to find and uh, maintain housing. 
Um, but beyond that, I can't think of a big idea that we've got out of the NDP really since 2015. And so uh, it has been a bit of an absent party, and I don't think Mulcair pointing that out is necessarily sour grapes. So uh, does he realize that perhaps this isn't helping the party, or does he feel that it might by pointing out these obvious uh, you know, things that are pe- people may be saying, saying behind closed doors but not in public? Yeah, I mean... I think, it, again, I mean, I, I can't see inside his head or his heart, but uh, my sense is really that Tom Mulcair is of the view that he's done his time as a member of the New Democratic Party. Uh, you know, uh, leaving on terms where he probably feels a bit hard done by, but, you know, when all is said and done, he sees his role now as being a political analyst, and, yeah, he's going to call them as he sees them. And is he right? How accurate is what he's saying? Well, I mean, I think... Uh, uh, he's right to point out that the NDP in some ways has been in a long hibernation on the federal stage. Uh, again, it's not clear what the ideas have been. They elected a new leader a year ago uh, who's had a hard time of uh, provide, making a profile for the party, of defining a clear set of issues or ideas that are going to guide it going forward. I mean, the leader's obviously been hampered by not having a seat in Parliament, and that may change in the next few months. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's right to point out that the NDP is in a tough spot, and if they're unable to develop uh, some kind of profile, uh, to say that they may lose some support to the Green Party as people who are looking for a serious uh, environmental alternative, I mean, it is a bit far-fetched, but it's, you know, not out of the realm of the possible. I mean, we've seen in provinces such as New Brunswick the uh, the Green Party electing members of the provincial legislature where the NDP's been shut out. So uh, it's not like the NDP will necessarily, you know, continue to get support from some sectors, and... Uh, if they aren't able to come up with a compelling campaign uh, for this fall's election, yeah, they could be in uh, in some trouble. Uh, as you mentioned, Mulcair suggested, and many have that that you know when you look at the, the the bottom parties, meaning Green and NDP, that they either one could could eventually be uh, third party status, and by that I mean obviously Green overtaking NDP. Obviously, in some areas their policy policies are the same, some they're very different. But can you see? them, uh, the Green Party, uh, obtaining third-party status ahead of the NDP? Well, I mean, nothing's impossible in politics. Uh, you know, as, uh, at a moment, uh, you know, with the weakness of the NDP, it's a possibility, although federally I haven't seen the Green Party make really important strides under Elizabeth May since the last election. They've they pretty be- much stalled out as much as the NDP have from that standpoint, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, I think it's in the provinces where you see the right. provincial Green parties, you know, with Mike Schreiner getting the first seat in Ontario, the three in uh, uh, New Brunswick holding the balance of power in British Columbia, where the, the Greens are a bit more present. It's harder to see them, them work federally. And there's a way in which, I mean, when the Greens do well, in many cases, it's because they're taking votes that would otherwise be liberal votes. So mm-hmm. there's a kind of working class base to the NDP that doesn't necessarily translate that well into the Green Party, which I think gathers two kinds of voters. One, people who are just upset of the political system and are looking for a kind of a protest vote. And yeah. That sometimes in the past has gone to the NDP. I think more recently it's been going to them or to the, the Marijuana Party or parties like that. And the other, I think, is a kind of middle-class uh, liberal voter who's worried about the environment. And so I think there's also been a fair bit of overlap with the liberal electorate. And, you know, Shriners win and the Green Party doing okay, although they didn't really do you know, so wonderfully outside of his uh, riding in the last provincial campaign. I think that's something to do with the Liberals going down in support. What can the federal Greens learn from the provincial Greens? Is it time for Elizabeth May? Is it time for new leadership there? 
Uh, yeah, I, I suspect, I mean, Elizabeth May has had a, a good run. I think it's a bit easier to run a provincial Green Party because you get to know uh, who's serious and who's crazy. I mm. think at the level of trying to run a pan-Canadian party where there's pockets of strength in B.C., a few ridings in Ontario, uh, you then have all the other ridings where uh, other interests who want to try and take over a, provi- uh, a political party have, have targeted it. So. On the one hand, they've had uh, people who want to push uh, boycott, uh, divestment, and sanctions against Israel uh, being successful in parts of the country. In others, it was a men's rights movement that got a number of things into uh, the party platform. So I think federally, the hard thing for the leader is, yeah, given the, the very variable strength of the party across the country, it's always ripe for people trying to take it over and impose interests that maybe don't have a lot to do with the Green Party into its platform. Are you surprised by the performance or lack there of of Jagmeet Singh? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly someone uh, came across in his time as a member of provincial parliament and then in the run for the leadership as someone who likes to win and hates to lose. And flashy for an NDP. Uh, it yeah. seemed to get people's attention. It seemed to get people's attention, but, you know, once you get people's attention, you have to have something to say. Yeah. And I think uh, the difficulty for Singh, on the one hand, was not having an obvious platform, not being a member of parliament, and so being unable, I think, to really harness what was happening in the House to help build, uh, you know, uh, arguments that would then also be visible to Canadians through the campaigns being run by riding associations and so forth. Uh, you know, I think the other difficulty for uh, Singh is that he's really an Ontarian. Uh, he's a he's a suburban boy from Windsor and Brampton, and so understanding you know how people live uh, in other parts of the country. I mean, in some ways, it's it seems obvious to us, but in fact, the way people talk about politics and what makes sense and what's right and what's wrong is is actually quite variable across the country. And a national party leader uh, has to learn that. And uh, not having had time in national politics, I think, has hurt it for for uh, Mr. Singh, particularly since he's had to deal with really tight uh, politics between NDP governments in Alberta and B.C., which have fundamentally mm. different views on, you know, really the central issue of our time about how we're going to develop petrocarbons, are we going to develop them, how we're going to limit them. And so, you know, without a very sort of strong base in the National Party, he's, I think, found himself kind of torn a bit uh, to shreds as the different factions have been fighting about that. Did he do enough to weigh in on what was happening between B.C. and Alberta? Again, it is surprising to have two neighbours fighting like that with the same government. Yeah, and both of them, you know, you can understand why they're taking the positions they do. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think generally you would try to keep your nose out of it as much as you can, and, and in that he succeeded. I think where he's failed is that you then, you know, you have to distract attention and say, uh, you know, the, the unsatisfying answer of not really choosing a side in that has to be then, uh, you have to distract that was to say, well, here's what I really stand for and here's what's really important in 2019 for the NDP. And I don't think we've seen that yet in terms of uh, a set of positions and, you know, using the platform of Parliament to begin to launch a set of themes about which uh, the NDP thinks they can uh, fight back against Trudeau and win back a number of the voters that they lost as part of that uh, liberal wave in 2015. Uh, the by-election in Burnaby, is it, uh, is it a shoe-in for him? Uh, I don't think it's a shoe-in for him. The polls have looked good so far, which you'd expect. And, uh, it's been a riding that's been held by the NDP, I mean, going back to the 1970s. Obviously, the, the riding boundaries have moved, the populations have shifted, but you can kind of trace that back to Sven Robinson and before as uh, an NDP riding. Uh, 
Uh, they won it closely in 2015, but it's one that he should win, and uh, the early polls uh, indicate that he's doing all right. Uh, we'll see whether the Liberals bringing in a slightly more serious candidate at the last minute changes it. But uh, I think uh, Mr. Singh is likely to be able to take it, even though he's not that uh, well-known in the riding as someone who's been parachuted in. Um, many said that after um, the Liberal initial Liberal candidate had... Uh, had to step down in regard to what she said to, uh, in regard to um, Jagmeet Singh's being of Indian descent. It looked at that point like this was wide open for him. Now with this uh, new candidate in there, in there, who, who you said is is obviously experienced, does that change this conversation at all? It does a little. I I think most people when they're you know voting in a by election. Uh, they're looking at some more specific features, and they might ask, well, you know, what's more interesting, to have a party leader coming out and representing us or to have uh, you know, sort of a, a recycled uh, provincial cabinet minister? Uh, you know, particularly in a situation where in B.C., where we're having these hearings at the moment about how the, that previous uh, liberal government you know, didn't seem to take money laundering that seriously. And so mm. it's, uh, the fact of having held that position on the one hand is a, you know, a sign of quality. On the other hand, uh, it gives you a bit of a taint of scandal at this point in time. So, yeah, I mean, I think it gives the Liberals a more credible candidate that they're running there. I'm not sure it's really going to, to change the dynamic uh, that greatly. Again, in a riding which, you know, historically has been uh, relatively supportive of the NDP for, you know, 30 years. So there's no reason to believe why they would change at this point. I mean, obviously with a sw- switch in candidates and, and so on and so forth, um, people are more voting for the party than they are the candidate at this point. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I think people... What does it say if a liberal, if all of a sudden a liberal wins, though, and, and Jagmeet Singh loses? Not well, only for the Liberal Party in B.C., but for, obviously, Singh's future. Yeah, I mean, I think it would uh, make it very complicated for him to stay on. Uh, I mean, I think he's admitted as much that if he was to lose it, he'd pretty much have to step down, which yeah. would cause uh, a crisis for the NDP having to choose a leader in election year, although that did seem to work for the Ontario PCs last year, so you never know, but... Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, he's since uh, walked that back, but I think it's part because you don't want to look like you're already thinking about losing while you're running. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, he has uh, a lot of uh, a lot of skin in this game. If he, if he loses, it probably is the end of his leadership uh, of the NDP, but uh, all told, I don't think that's a likely outcome. How, what does the NDP have to do to win, uh, especially when it seems uh, liberal governments are heading them off at the pass. I mean, is there a is there a clear clear journey, a clear path for them at this point? Uh, well, I mean, I think in terms of uh, surviving the next election, they do have, you know, despite having a number of stalwarts stepping down. I mean, we had uh, you know David Christophers stepping down in Hamilton Centre, for instance. They do have. Uh, still a good core of MPs who are popular locally, and so even with uh, without a wonderful national campaign, they, they should do reasonably well on that uh, level. You know, the question is, where can they grow? And I think part of the interest in Mr. Singh when he was uh, running for the leadership was this idea that he might be able to win for the NDP in places like Brampton uh, and, you know, the suburbs of large cities where the NDP has been absent for, well, maybe 40 years since uh, the early 70s they had some success in the, the suburbs, say, of Toronto. Um, and so I think the promise there is, is there a capacity to have a message that will resonate? And to date, we haven't seen that. But I guess, you know, what would be successful for the NDP in this uh, campaign would be uh, to not have uh, their vote collapse in the suburbs of the cities where people say, OK, we're going to vote for the Liberals to head off Mr. Shear. you know, to actually have a capacity 
you know, which uh, Leighton took him about four elections to build up, is being able to kind of return to, to be able to have at least uh, respectable scores in the suburbs of uh, the major cities of Canada. How volatile is politics in BC right now, considering what is going on and, and the NDP being propped up by the Green? Uh, well, I mean, provincially, yeah, it remains kind of skin of the teeth politics. Uh, given the sort of weakness of the Liberals in terms of being tainted by scandal, uh, they aren't that eager to go to the polls. Uh, there's a new electoral financing system, so I think the Liberals in particular have to rebuild a base of donors. So, I mean, there's some volatility in that the government has uh, got a very thin uh, majority. Uh, but, I mean, uh, I, I don't really see any of the parties seeing that they're going to make uh, huge gains if suddenly there was an election. So I suspect it's going to uh, kind of chug along as it has uh, for the past couple of years, at least for another year through another budget cycle. Uh, will Thomas Mulcair continue to do what he does right up until the federal election? Uh, presumably until then and after. Uh, uh, I think he really sees himself as someone who, uh, you know, he's got a he's got a gig at the University of Montreal as one of these sort of ex-politicians in residence to, you know, have a chance to uh, share his experiences as a Quebec cabinet minister and as a leader of a national party. And I suspect he'll supplement that by being in the news. I think, he, you know, we've seen him as someone who's a bit of a political animal. Uh, he's also someone who likes to do his own thing. And, he was uh, a great leader of the opposition, boy. I mean, he's, he's great at that, uh, at that role. Uh, he, he was great as the Inquisitor-in-Chief, in uh, certainly. I mean, if we look back at that election campaign, we might say, did he actually build a team that was going to bring him over the finish line? Uh, had he done enough to build a party that could follow him? Were his own performances in the debates as wonderful as we might have thought, given how well he was in uh, doing in question period? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of, I think, romantic thinking about uh, Thomas Mulcair, uh, certainly a political ace in terms of uh, the, the House of Commons, whether as a leader doing the things behind the scenes that he needed to do to be successful. Uh, uh, history may judge him a bit less kindly. How uh, do you think Canadians are viewing what he's doing now um whether you're in it whether you're uh, uh agree with the ndp's politics or not uh, are people viewing this as sour grapes or pointing out the obvious uh, well i think it depends on how you feel <laughs> i think people who uh were uh, you know in the ndp universe probably say it's a case of sour grapes uh, people who aren't are probably happy to see the sort of internal uh, fights and divisions within the NDP and as a kind of a sign of a further sign of the difficulty that that party's been having, you know, to find its place after uh, the loss of 2015. So, uh, yeah, I think for some people it's a kind of a clear-eyed set of stories he's uh, telling. I suspect even people who see it as sour grapes, uh, you know, recognize the element of truth in it, but ask, well, you know, shouldn't a former party leader uh, show more respect for the team. Um, you know, it's not often that party leaders do this. Uh, certainly Bob Ray, after he was premier, was happy to come out and run over the NDP. And I think at the time people said, well, wait a second, you became premier because all these people work for you, and now you say they're a bunch of, you know, misguided idiots. Mm. Um, you know, does, does that really look good on you? In the case of Tom Mulcair, I think it's a bit different because he was not as long as a, the NDP leader. But again, I think uh, even people who say it's sour grapes probably recognize some elements of truth in, in the questions he's asking about, well, really, where is the NDP? Can the NDP continue to be successful with people who are concerned about the environment? Uh, say he does win the by-election and uh, does get his seat in the House. How is that going to change things? How is that going to, especially the appearance of the NDP? 
Well, I mean, in the coverage of politics every day, uh, you know, the stories come out of Ottawa, and they have, it's a bit like reading a, a comic strip every day, right? Mm. Those are, there's the party leaders who are, you know, having their talk back and forth, and, you know, Jagmeet Singh has not been in that comic strip because he's not been in Ottawa. So I think instantly it gives the NDP a presence in the national debates that it hasn't had, uh, well, really in three years. Uh, and so that's a, you know, will be a significant change. The other thing is, I think there's been a difficulty inside the NDP of linking what the members of parliament are doing in Ottawa and what the NDP is trying to put forward as a set of uh, options or ideas for Canadians. And having the leader, I think, in the House is a way of bringing together those two parts of what a political party does. Peter Grave has been with us, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. As always, Peter, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The State of the Union address taking place tonight. What can we expect uh, from a Trump uh, Trump speech, which with, of course, um, both Democrats and Republics, uh, Republicans watching. Uh, let's bring in Renan Levine, lecturer, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and on the line with us now. Renan, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, although I sort of feel like I'm missing out on soup fest. You know, I, just, I just warmed up some leftover soup, and it probably does not compare. <laughs> I must admit, it does smell amazing in here, that's for sure. It smells like one giant kitchen. Uh, uh, all right, so next year, let's, let's do a live chat. To that's right, that's that. exactly. We, we have to get you involved somehow, perhaps as a judge. Maybe that's the answer. I, I, I could do that. <laughs> I, I could do that. I, I, I probably might enjoy that more than I will enjoy watching the State of the Union tonight, which I will also do, but, you know, it would be better with a nice hot bowl of soup in this Ontario winter. Well, perhaps maybe just some sort of stiff drink might help you get through all this, uh, (laughs) you know, at the end of it all. So what are you expecting? Um, Much more of the same, I guess, or or will it it be different this time because of the balance of power that we have? I think I think we're, it, we're getting more of the same, and I think that's really important for people who are listening to us talk right now. Is that uh, this is the third time Donald Trump has given a State of the Union address, and arguably the first two times there was a novelty factor, right? What is Donald Trump going to say or do? Is he going to sound presidential, or mm. is he going to sound, you know, like that rally leader who says these crazy extemporaneous things, and you know? makes fun of, um, of victims of assault. Uh, you know, with Donald Trump, well, we know what's going to happen, right? It, 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 this is the third time. Um, and as a result, partially as a result, I, I don't expect it to have much of an effect um, because the novelty factor is largely gone. Um, political junkies, myself included, and probably mm-hmm. a lot of your listeners, um, will be, I think, interested to see some of the details. Is he going to improvise? Is he going to depart from his speech, his prepared remarks in any way, um, which are supposed to be stressing bipartisanship and everyone unifying, parentheses, behind him? Hmm. Um, what, what, how will he respond to Nancy Pelosi sitting right behind him? That on was one of my questions. What, what, does that change the dynamic? I mean, what Donald Trump are we going to see with you know, her breathing down his neck? Right. Well, you know, interesting you put it that way of her breathing down the neck. You know, she's going to sit there and, you know, she may not even be smiling much. Mm. She'll probably be sitting a nice, relaxed back. And, you know, most politicians, who, of course, Donald Trump has never been like most politicians, it's going to be like, whatever, here's 
here's someone who's not especially enthused by what I'm saying, but Donald Trump rarely ventures outside of a partisan bubble, yeah. right? He he gives when he's meeting the public, it's usually in you know these partisan rally type atmospheres. When he gives interviews, it's almost always to um, sort of supportive media outlets who he knows will be sort of gentle. Um, what is his ego going to do? I mean, these are the kinds of you know things that we junkies are going to be concerned about, and probably the casual listener will you know check in the late night news or uh, early in the morning see what you know people are saying and what memes people are posting on instagram i mean that i think is what people are really looking forward to is he says something and there's the look of nancy pelosi behind him um i i think that's what a lot of people are looking forward to seeing um but i don't think that that's going to hold their attention for you know 30 45 minutes of prime time when they could be you could, you talked about uh, how his performance changes depending on the venue. There was chatter during the shutdown that um, you know he might switch venues and then decided to keep it where it was. Um, as a result, will we will we see any of that rallying cry that we normally see in those uh, convention centers or arenas or wherever he he plays to his base? Will we see any aspect of that, or will this be totally descript? Yeah, I, I think that. I think we're going to see at least some aspect of that. I mean, the, the script will almost definitely include some of that. Uh, you know, at a minimum, uh, he's going to continue talking about the economy and jobs gains and a stock market that, after a rocky couple of months, seems to be coming back up. Um, he's absolutely going to be talking about that. Um, every State of the Union address really has these two main goals, right? Throw out a bunch of things that is going to make your base and your supporters happy and talk about priorities moving forward that your base, your core supporters are going to be excited about. And then the other part is is trying to go beyond the base. And that's where Donald Trump has really struggled throughout his presidency. And I fear, the cynic in me, fears that we're at a point where America is so divided that he's going to have a very hard time both reaching out and saying wonderful things that his base will love and trying to grab independents and even Democrats, many of whom, of course, won't even be watching. Everybody Um, talks about how strong his base is. Doesn't matter what he says. Doesn't matter what he he does. Um, You know, things that he has done would have... uh, sideline many a politician he just seems to get away with it and the answer is well it depends who you ask yeah you know it it appeals to his base is that base still strong is that base questioning him even post shutdown i i there are there i mean it's sort of a yes and yes right the base is strong i think a lot of political scientists like myself are surprised that this base is still hanging in there fairly strong but there were absolutely signs of erosion. Um, and the erosion is coming for three reasons. One is the shutdown. One is Republicans, especially in Congress, are really pushing back um, over his moves starting in December um, with trying to pull American troops out of Syria and Afghanistan. Um, and, and the third one is, is the border wall, you know, obviously related directly to the shutdown. But the reality is, is that even a lot of Republicans are like, okay, let's talk border security. No one 
you know, except the really core Trump supporters were ever really married to this idea of a wall. Mm. Most people are like, okay, you know, even if we're going to be like, we have to prioritize the threats coming into our country, they're not talking about walls or they're willing to compromise on the walls. Um, so, and then, and then I think has been the real sort of puzzle of these last two months and thing that's made a lot of Republicans really frustrated is that they know that their core supporters, by and large, general Republicans, are happy to get border security without a wall. Hmm. And Trump dug in his heels on it has to be a wall. So, uh, as we talked earlier, many uh, question what Donald Trump you're going to get uh, tonight, whether it will be the presidential one that sticks to the, uh, to the teleprompter or whether he veers off. The fact, what about the room? I mean, because sometimes there's applause, sometimes there's cheers, sometimes there's jeers. Will he get caught up in the room? Will they try to knock him off course, off center? And will he respond to the room, per se? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, I mean, I, I mean, look, he's done this now twice before. Yeah. Um, and, you know... But what would a change in balance? A little different. You've got 40 new Democrats sitting on the House side. Right. But the reality is, is, you know, there was always, you know, slightly more than half that was supportive and slightly less than half that wasn't. Now those numbers are slightly shifted. Um, so, you know, I, I think he, he certainly has experience now in speaking to an audience that half of it are not going to stand up and applaud. Um, half of them will stand up and applaud. Uh, you know, again, those will are he draw attention? Will he draw details? It? It's the Syrian Afghanistan, right? If he starts talking about defense and budget, if he needles his base, this could be interesting because Democrats and Republicans could be sitting down on the same thing. Will he try for a response? Will he try to play that crowd? I suspect that his advisors today are trying to work with him on trying to essentially fight his instincts, right? Mm -hmm. I think normally if he would get a sense that the crowd isn't responding, he would start playing to the crowd. And I think there are, I would suspect that his advisors today are trying to not let Trump be Trump, but they are trying to get Trump to recognize that, hey, like, this isn't my usual rally. Let's not do what he is very good at doing, which is, you know, shifting you know, the tone and the discourse at least a little bit in order to get the crowd riled up even more. He's not going to get that feedback. Uh, and I think, they're, I think they're stressing that with him. Um, so, I mean, I'm not expecting him to fall flat on his face in that regard. I mean, this is, he, we've seen him do this before. If anyone's expecting him to fall completely flat on his face, it's like, are you kidding me? He's done this. Like, you know, <laughs> let's be realistic on the expectations. There could be little things, right? The fact that Nancy Pelosi is sitting behind him, that might unnerve him. Um, again, you know, I would suspect that, you know, as he rehearses, his staff is telling him, look, if you start feeling unnerved, just look at that teleprompter. Hmm. Uh, how much do you think the wall or the shutdown will come up tonight? Will he mention the shutdown? Will he try, will he try, to, will he try to lay blame? Yeah, I, 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 I don't know how he can avoid it, right? Because he's said repeatedly that, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't give in, he didn't cave. So we might even see some of that language. Um, 
All he did was allow people to go back to work for a couple weeks in order for the negotiations to proceed. So he's probably going to emphasize trying to look at both sides and say, I'm expecting you, Congress, to come up with a compromise, which is sort of a weird situation, right, where the president's the one that's dealing in the heels and now he's asking, you know, essentially people on his behalf to come up with a compromise. Um, but he's not really interested in compromising. He's never signaled that. Um, so I think the big news would be is if he does signal that he's willing to compromise and push things off, not build a wall this year, uh, which means he's not going to build a wall until after 2020 if it doesn't get in the budget this year. Um, and so I, I, I think that could be the big headline, but I also don't expect him to be doing that. So we'll see. What do you I mean, think? I would certainly call into you tomorrow and be like, wow, I'm surprised. Can you believe that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What about Democratic rebuttal here? Well, so Stacey Abrams, um, I think there's uh, a lot of um, Democrats uh, who have high hopes. Um, your listeners may remember this is uh, the African-American lady who ran for governor of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And in an election um, that was marred by controversy and allegations of election shenanigans, shall we say, she lost narrowly, very narrowly, to her far-right Republican opponent. And so, um, but the thing is, is that this is a, this is a minefield. Yeah. Um, there is a long list of rising stars that you know national base of that party um, would be excited about, who have absolutely stumbled in giving the official response to the State of the Union. The list includes both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, remember Obama's first one, Bobby Jindal, governor of, mm. of Louisiana. I mean, talked about that man being the new big star of the Republican Party. Now, 2018, it's, you know, sorry, 2019, it's Bobby Jindal who? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, people have high expectations, especially since Stacey Abrams currently doesn't have a job. Um, she'd like, you know, people to be paying attention to her. Uh, and be excited about her for, you know, some great efforts moving forward. Um, but it's a, that is a tough job to have. You it, have a tough job, you know, working while smelling all that soup. I know. She's She's got a really <laughs> tough job, though. She's got to follow the president. It is going to be must-see TV. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Renan Levine has been with his lecture, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Always a pleasure. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.